Our text this morning again is from the book of Acts chapter 19 and it will be the same that was read for you in the scripture reading earlier on from verses 23 there to the end of the chapter. For those of you who may be visiting with us, we are uh, going through a series in the book of Acts. Uh, We're discovering what it means that the work of Jesus that began when he came to the earth didn't end when he left earth. It continues and it continues particularly breaking across all kinds of boundaries. As we learned from Pastor Jason last week, uh, it, the work of Christ breaks through linguistic boundaries and uh, in allowing people to speak in different languages to share uh, the gospel with people beyond. Uh, now we're seeing what happens when the work of Jesus, uh, as proclaimed in the Christian message, uh, reaches a city, the city of Ephesus, a major city in the Roman Empire that had been steeped in idolatry. Uh, Several years ago, my wife and I took a mission trip to Panama. We were with some teenagers and some medical staff, and it was a medical mission trip. So the idea was uh, for them to helicopter us into a remote village, drop us there for a few days, uh, leave us there in the sweltering heat and uh, the primitive conditions that we're in and let us do some some ministry there in the jungle and then the helicopters would pick us back up and take us to civilization well it was obviously a memorable trip uh, with those teenagers and the the medical team some physicians dentists and eye doctors and they uh people started just flooding into the clinic there to get treated for various things i remember uh, particularly one guy came into the clinic with this um, massive tumor on his back and I'm, I see this thing, I'm thinking, this looks, this is terrible. This looks really, and the, the surgeon is starting to get really excited. Uh, you know, th- to him, this just looks like a great opportunity. Uh, so he goes, he and his assistant prep the guy for surgery, and pretty soon they have him, they have him cut open, and they're, op- they're operating on him. And uh, if, if someone didn't know anything about surgery, if someone didn't know anything about what a, a healthy human back was supposed to look like, or if someone didn't know anything about tumors, they might be thinking, what is this knife going to destroy? What is this guy doing cutting somebody open? What is going to be destroyed by this incision? I think a parallel question could be asked about what's going on here in Ephesus. Something is being disturbed. Something is being disrupted. After all, Luke has said in verse 21, or verse 23, there arose no little disturbance. I love Luke's understated way. No little disturbance concerning the way. No little disturbance. Yeah, a little bit of an understatement. This was a massive riot. Jesus himself had said during his earthly ministry, don't think that I've come to send peace to the earth. I have not come to send peace, but a sword. What is that sword destroying now, this is a relevant question for not only Luke when he's writing his gospel and his uh, account of the early, early Christianity in the first century. This is relevant for us today. Uh, Luke was writing because there were uh, a lot of questions about what Christianity was doing in the ancient world. Uh, there were riots breaking out in cities. Uh, there were people burning books of magic. Uh, there were people that were uh, opposing the message. In fact, a few... Uh, A few years earlier, prior to this incident, uh, Claudius, the Roman emperor, had expelled all the Jews from Rome because there was so much tumult over this this Christ uh, person. And so Luke was writing here to to sort through, 
here's what Christianity is against, here's what it's not against. Here's what it, it is meant to disrupt, here's what it is not meant to disrupt. Here is what Jesus is against, and here's what Jesus is not against. You see, Luke is sorting this out for us. Now, this is relevant not only for Luke, it's relevant for us today as well. Because we recognize that the Christian faith is antithetically opposed to many things. But we realize that's not all it is. The Christian faith is for some things. How do we understand what the Christian faith is for and what it is against? What is it, what is it intended to promote and what is it intended to cast down? What is Jesus for and what is Jesus against? That's the question that, Luke's, that Luke is seeking to sort out here. And so from this, this incident that we read here in Acts, we are going to uh, see how Luke presents this, and we're going to see it in four parts. We're going to see what Jesus is not against, what Jesus is against, why he is against it, and how he is against it, okay? So just four steps to, to the sermon here. And by the way, uh, if you're taking notes, that's a good mental map for you. And if you're a kid, hopefully you might have uh, got one of those sheets on your way in, and that's a way to stay engaged with the, with the preaching, and so you can follow along, even if you're not a kid. You can draw pictures and, and draw outlines and do a mind map or whatever it takes for you to uh, absorb this message from Scripture. So we're going to proceed in these ways. What Jesus is not against, what he is against, why he's against it, and how he's against it. So first of all, let's look at what Jesus is not against, or what the way, to be more specific, because Luke uses this term, the way. What is the way of Jesus not against? Well, it could have been, uh, there could have been the accusation here that the way of Jesus was against at least three things here in this, in this passage. Uh, society, culture, and business. Because... Uh, there, and I'll explain, explain to you why. Because, first of all, uh, there was an event that seemed like it was disrupting society. There was a riot. And what Luke is concerned to do is to tell this story, the facts of the story, so that we'll know this was not the fault of the Christians. It was not the fault of Christianity. This riot that happened uh, was a result of the, the raging uh, anger of the businessmen who were, whose business was, was threatened. Uh, hundreds, probably thousands of people were clogging the streets of Ephesus, headed to this massive uh, theater. And uh, Luke is showing us that, that Christianity is not against society, it's not against um, reasoned discourse, peaceful gathering, because earlier in the chapter, he's contrasting the way Paul promoted Christianity with the riot in Ephesus. So if you look back in verse, uh, in verse 9 and 10 of chapter uh, 19, you, it says, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, this referring to Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Notice, notice the contrast with this riot in Ephesus. Reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, why is this such an important point? Because Paul's approach to reason, not, not um, just foam and rage, Daily, not just one big uh, blowout of a riot in the theater. And in the hall of Tyrannus, there was a, a set place in which he would do it, established, and he would do it daily. So see what a contrast Paul's method of promoting the Christian faith is, and he did this for a long time, with this sudden eruption of 
chaos in the city of Ephesus. So what Luke is doing is he's saying this. No, Jesus, or the way of following Jesus, is not against society. In fact, he points out the irrationality of the people who had gathered there. Uh, if you remember from the reading, in verse 32, it says, some cried one thing and some another, and most of the people didn't even know why they were there. That sounds like a great, great time, doesn't it? Why are we here? I don't know. Everyone's running this way. Everyone's really excited. What are they shouting? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, there's a kind of uh, subhuman thing going on here, a kind of irrationality. Luke is saying this is not the effect of the Christian faith. When I think of, actually, Paul later on refers to this event. Um, he, he says, uh, one of, in one of his letters, he says, I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus. It's almost, almost as if he's comparing these, the, the raging irrationality of these people in a riot with beasts. When I think of beasts, you know the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of beasts? Beauty and the beast, of course. All right? There is this, there is this character who because of his, note, note this, because of his complete self-centeredness kind of goes subhuman alienates himself from people, begins acting in irrational manner, in an irrational manner. There's this beastliness. What, what Luke is saying, he's contrasting the, the, the irrational, um, animal-like uh, behavior of the people in this theater and saying, this is not the product of Christianity. The product of Christianity is, is promoting human society. So, so Jesus is not against society. But there's another thing Jesus is not against that he's concerned to point out, and that is Jesus is not against culture. Now, it's an interesting point here that Luke makes through the words of the town, the, the city clerk. So the city clerk is trying to calm everybody down there uh, in, the, in, the, in the theater of the temple of Artemis. And he says in verse 37, you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now, the, the word that's translated blasphemers is a word related to a, uh, the term for a vandal, uh, vandalism. So he's saying, these people aren't coming in and spray painting the idols. They're not taking a hammer and throwing them at the paintings or, or whatever. Their method is not to deface our temple. They have a different method entirely. They're not anti-culture. They're not iconoclasts. They're not out to just break things down. Yes, it is true that earlier in the chapter, uh, we read that a large group of people had made a big, huge heap of all their books of magic and burned them. You could say, well, that looks, that's kind of seems um, iconoclastic, but these were things that they owned. These were things that they had been in possession of and that they realized that these books of magic were not the way of Jesus. They were dragging them down. So Jesus is not against human society. Jesus is not against a culture. And a third point that Luke is making, and there, there could be others that we could see in this passage, but this is particularly prominent, is that Jesus, or the way of Jesus, is not against business. It's not against business. Although the business of these um, idol maker, they're making like these little statuettes of the goddess Artemis, and people would buy these because they believed that uh, those those idols, those images, uh, had some, behind them were some power for uh, fertility and the hunt. I'm going to explain a little more about that later. But they were making these idols, and they were afraid, no one's going to buy these things anymore if, if no one believes that God's made with hands or God's at all. So he's recounting the, the, the kind of, uh, you know, roughly accurate uh, 
a summary of the message that they were, had been preaching, saying, God's made with hands are not God's at all. So, oh no, our business is going to fold. The entire industry is going to go under. But Luke wants to make the point here that the way of Jesus is not, is not anti-business. How do I know that? Earlier in, earlier in the book of Acts, in fact, just a chapter before, and if you look, flip back to chapter 18, Luke makes this very interesting point that Paul himself was a businessman. Luke 18, if you look at verse 3, uh, the, to provide some context, Paul teams up with a, uh, a couple, uh, Mrs. Priscilla, I think Pastor Jason is Mrs. Priscilla and Mr. Aquila, right? This is the couple that had taught uh, Apollos in the way of Christianity. But they were in the tent-making business, and that was Paul's trade too. So Paul himself was a businessman. He was involved in trade. And so the point is very clear that although the fear in Ephesus was that because of Christianity, an entire industry was going to go under, Luke wants to make it clear that Jesus, or the way of Jesus, is not anti-business. All right. Well, if Jesus isn't against society, if he's not against culture, if he's not against business, then how do you explain the disruption of all these things? So what is the way of Jesus against? That takes us to our second point. What Jesus is not against, he's not against society, culture, and business themselves, What's going on here then? What's the disruption? What is the knife of Christianity cutting into, pulling out, extricating? What is Jesus against? Well, we can see the heart of it in the words of Demetrius when he said, quoted Paul, saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. If Jesus is not against society, culture, and business... He is against something that invades every society, that infests every business, and that penetrates every culture. And that is idolatry. There is something that has woven itself into every human culture. There's something that has, like a, like a malignant tumor, stretched its cancerous tentacles into every culture and even businesses, and that is idolatry. And at this point, you're thinking, well, what a relief, because we don't struggle with idolatry in 21st century America. If, if you think that idolatry was some psychological aberration, uh, thankfully relegated to antiquity that we don't deal with it anymore because just because we don't have temples to Athena, Apollos, uh, or Artemis, th then let me explain to you what idolatry really is. First consider what was happening when they worshipped the goddess Artemis. I said a few minutes ago that Artemis was the goddess of two main parts of life. Uh, for the Ephesians and many others in that area. She was the goddess of the hunt and the goddess of fertility. What that simply means is they were the goddess that, she was the goddess that they would invoke when they would go out for a hunt, hoping that they would capture or take their prey, in, which was essential for their well-being. Uh, and they would invoke her uh, so that they could have many children. Now, 
in an agrarian culture, that is a culture that depends on farming and, and trades, uh, children were not a burden, as many people today unfortunately consider children. Children were, you had, they, they were your social security. They, they, they were your way of making sure that you would be, you would have a retirement. Uh, so the more children you had, the more secure you, you were, the more children you had, the more significance you felt, and the more children you had, the more satisfied ultimately you would be. And the same was true of the, the hunt. If you're able to bring in things from the hunt, that would guarantee your, your security, uh, ultimately your significance, and of course, your level of satisfaction. So what Artemis was, was a means to an end behind their honoring and invoking of Artemis was their appetite for something, their craving for something that would give them significance, security, and satisfaction. Now, we have those same cravings today, don't we? We think that we're more sophisticated about it simply because we don't have temples to gods and goddesses when, in fact, we're just more blind to our idols. They're, just, they're, just, they're still there. They're just invisible to us. Everyone, all of us in this room, Every, from every child to the oldest adult here has something or some things that we believe will bring us security, significance, and satisfaction. It is whatever has captured the, the imagination of your heart with its beauty, something you crave for. You can detect what you worship by what enrages you if it gets threatened or what fills you with a sense of dread if you think about ever living without it. I, I don't know what your idols might be. I don't know what your objects of worship might be. There are sometimes, we tend to be polytheistic. We have many kinds of things we attach our affection to, but, but you can begin to probe into that if you are attentive to why you are so filled with dread, why you may be so filled with anxiety, or why you suddenly get enraged at certain things. In our culture, as in, any, as in many cultures, the typical idols, common idols, are sex, money, and power. But there are other kinds of idolatries. There are other kinds of idols that can be worshipped. There can be racial idolatry. It's one thing to be grateful for the God-given differences among humans, differences of ancestral heritage. But when someone begins assigning final value and significance and satisfaction and security to their race, such that it causes them to look down on other people, such as that it causes them to be filled with rage and dread when they feel like their ancestral heritage is somehow being threatened, there is a good sign that there is racial idolatry going on there. And we've seen this throughout history, and we see it in our very own day. There are other very subtle forms of idolatry. There can be even religious idolatry. Someone may say, and this can be very subtle, it can sneak into our hearts in the most insidious ways. This is Idolatry can be the master of deception. You can think, I'm a Christian. Therefore, I'm right. And boy, do I love being right. And suddenly, what you begin finding security, satisfaction, 
and significance in is no longer Jesus, but suddenly being right about everything, such that it causes you to look down upon other people and feel threatened and enraged when people don't agree with you. There is a sign of idolatry. What do all these things have in common? They are this. They are attaching the affection of your heart to something other than God. What Demetrius said that Paul said is true. God's made with hands are not God's. This is what Jesus is against. This is what Jesus came to destroy. The Apostle of John, uh, the Apostle John, in his first letter, he said, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. The sword, the knife that cuts out the cancer, it's not not cutting something that makes humans humans. It's cutting something that makes us subhuman. It's cutting out something that makes us, that that turns us into the beast. It's our self-centered attachment to what we think can provide true security and significance and satisfaction when instead it's actually just enslaving us, captivating us, crushing us. That's what idolatry is, and that's what idolatry does. And we're all in danger of it, and that is what Jesus is against. Now, why is Jesus against this? First of all, I asked what, we answered what Jesus is not against. He's not against these things that we see. Uh, He's not against culture per se, society per se. He's not against business per se. He's against something that infests all of these things. What is it? It is idolatry, the attachment of your heart to something other than God in which you think you can find security, satisfaction, and significance. Why is Jesus against it? What is so wrong with these idols? Whatever you look to for ultimate meaning, Whatever you look to for ultimate satisfaction, significance, is always going to be what you must, you're going to love it, and you're going to trust it, and you're going to obey it. That's what we do with idols. We love them, and because we love them, we trust them, and because we trust them, we obey them. We are, what are we trusting? We're trusting their claim that they are what we need. I need this to be satisfied. I need this to feel significant. And because I need this, I'm willing to obey it and sacrifice things to get it. We are always sacrificing to what we think will give us these things. And this could be, there could be many, uh, many things that we sacrifice to. Jesus is against these things because there, there is something you must know about these idols. These idols are not just, this is not just psychological fantasy. This is not just religious psychology. There is a quickly, thankfully, fading view in Western culture that we can't really talk about the supernatural. We can't really, uh, it's not, ra- it's not uh, reasonable to believe in angels and demons. Um, that, that's a very, it's, it's, it's a very enlightenment view, but it's limited to a certain, it's been limited to a certain part of Europe and, and, and North America, and thankfully it's quickly fading. We, we often think, well, talk about God maybe is okay, but angels and demons are too much. But recent events in human history have dislodged people's confidence that there is no value in talking about angels 
and demons. Uh, Andrew Delbanco, he's the professor at the University of Columbia. He's the author of a book called The Death of Satan. He writes this, it's very interesting. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. In other words, psychology and social con conditioning are too flimsy to explain the depth of evil that we witness in our society. Can you really explain the depth of, of the, the depth of the evil of the Holocaust in purely human terms? Or the tragedies that we, of the shootings that we've seen in the past couple weeks? No, behind these is the reality that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of, the wor of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. What Paul says in another of his letters is this. We know that in an idol, that is that little, that little statue of Artemis or whatever, that's really, that's really nothing. There's, there's nothing like living inside that thing. But he says this, there are such things as demons. And they, they can bind your heart to things that are not God. And there is grave danger in that. Why is Jesus against these things? Because he knows something about our idols that often we deceive ourselves about. And that though behind those idols are spiritual forces intent on destroying us. Which is why I quoted that verse to you earlier from 1 John that says Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Whenever we allow our hearts and minds to be enchanted by, mesmerized by, to find ultimate significance and security and satisfaction in something other than God, then there behind that is a spiritual force that is, it is, it is destructive. And we see this being played out in our society. And people who once thought that you can explain all these things in merely psychological terms or, or by social con conditioning have, have realized, no, our, our explanations are far too flimsy to deal with how dark these things are. In some cases, and this, I'm answering the question, why is Jesus against this? In some cases, entire industries, remember I said that Jesus is not against business, but there are some businesses, the whole premise of which is antithetical to why Jesus came. Entire industries must go. For example, in the case of the African slave trade, the African slave trade was an example of a massive temple spanning continents to the god of money and racial superiority. And it was William Wilberforce's Christian convictions that led him to seek to overturn that wicked slave trade because he believed that every human being having been created in God's image possessed inherent dignity and value no matter what continent they came from. And the slave trade in view of Christian values had to end. The same goes with sex trafficking and other industries that are premised upon a, a idol, a God that is completely antithetical to Christianity. But in many cases, it's, in many cases, we can latch our hearts to something that is not overtly wrong. It may be, there may be some good in it, but it's not God. 
I was listening just last night to an interview with a, a man who was made his whole life about basketball. What's wrong with basketball? That's a good thing. Yes, but, but an idol is a good thing turned to an ultimate thing. It, it, is, it is something that God has created that your heart says, no, now I'll find significance in that. And this man in this interview said that as he was as young as 14 years old, the very thought of him not being a professional basketball player filled him with such panic and dread that as a, as a young teenager, he came to the realization, I've made an idol out of this, and the idol is destroying me. And he looks back on that point when he realized that he needed to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, not basketball, to be saved. So idolatry is all around us. It's within us. Why? Because we all have this craving for satisfaction. This is why Jesus is against it because it's destructive, it's universal, it's in our hearts. Now, the question, the final question we need to ask is then how, how does Jesus defeat this? How does Jesus remove this, this tumor? If only it just were a tumor. <laughs> if only it were just even cancer. How does Jesus remove this? We see examples of this in our favorite films and stories. For example, when the hero, in, in the middle of a gunfight, for example, draws the enemy fire onto himself to protect his friends. Or when a brave soldier, after a grenade is launched right into the, the bunker, leaps upon that grenade and absorbs the explosion with his own body. We see glimpses of this in our stories. What Jesus was doing here to destroy the works of the devil was taking upon himself the sin of the world. That's why John the Baptist, as Pastor Jason talked about last week, was the one who would proclaim, first of all, when Jesus came onto the scene, behold, there is the Lamb of God who does what? He takes upon himself the sin of the world. He bears it upon himself so that he gets treated like the tumor, so that he gets treated like the cancer that must be destroyed. Several years ago, my youngest brother at the age of 27, was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's a cancer, but not just in one part of the body. It's a cancer of the blood. And it won't do just to have, sir, I mean, you can't just cut, cut someone open and take that out um, and fix the problem. They need new blood. And thankfully, my older brother was a match. And they went through the process, not without much sacrifice, of the bone marrow transplant that eventually, praise the Lord, saved my brother's life. But in the case of that transplant, the one giving, donating the, the bone marrow didn't get the cancer. Thankfully, my older brother lives as well. But in the case of Jesus, he took, not only did he give 
his life for us, but he took the destruction that we deserved. That's how Jesus destroys the work of the devil. When, when the enemy fire blasted everything they could, when they expended all their artillery on Jesus and could, they could do no more, he rose from the dead, victorious. Why? Because death had no hold on him because he had no sin. He rises from the dead and, as it were, says to Satan and his evil forces, is that all? Is that all you can do? He expends within himself the enemy fire so that we can be healed, so that we can be free from the idols we think will save us, we think will, we think will give us security and satisfaction and significance because Jesus says, he says about himself, I, in giving my life, I am also giving you true security, true satisfaction, true significance. What more significance could you want than to have God the Father look upon you in Christ and say, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. What more satisfaction could you want than to live both now and forever in the blissful presence of God serving Him and, and, and doing His will? What more security could you want than the love of the one who gave Himself for you in Christ alone? That's how we find true satisfaction, security, and significance, and that's how Jesus defeats the works of the devil and frees us from, my, from our idolatry. Ah, the words of Demetrius, that greedy businessman, were truer, was, were truer than he knew that gods made with hands are not gods at all. Yes, it caused a riot. Yes, the sword of the gospel came to divide an entire city, but in so doing, it cut out cancer. That's what Jesus is against. And the plea for you today, my friends, is to turn from your dead idols and serve the living God. I don't know what they are. I don't know. It, it's, the, those idols are as, just look around at the people in the room. And they're, as, they're as diverse as the people in this room, myself included. You know, when confronted, when you and I are confronted by our need to abandon our idols, our common response is one of dread <clears throat> or rage. If you found yourself feeling uncomfortable when I started describing some, com some of those common idols a few minutes ago, that may be a good indication that it has wormed its way into your heart and needs to be extracted. And you may be thinking, The whole idea of abandoning this, feels, abandoning this fills me with dread and fear. I can't abandon my idol because I'll lose power, my power to cope. If you just think about what you're saying, you're saying that your idol, whether it's money, whether it's a substance addiction, you're saying that that idol has more power than the one who spoke this world into existence. You say, I, I can't do without this thing because I don't know if the outcome will be good for me. Think about what you're saying. You're saying your idol, your, whatever you're thinking about in your mind, can take better care of you than the one who loved you so much he gave his life for you. You might think, I can't abandon this because if I do, so-and-so who will think such-and-such such about me. 
Are you saying that this person's opinion about you means more than the opinion of the creator of this universe? You might say, I can't abandon this idol because I don't know the next, I, I can't see the whole path forward. I'm in a mess right now. Maybe you are in a mess right now. And you're like, if I, if I extricate myself from this or if I turn from this to, to Jesus, I, I don't know what the rest of my life it will, is going to look like. You don't need to know what the rest of your life is going to look like. That, that, that is what you've been doing to your idol. You've been loving, trusting, and obeying it. And now what Jesus is calling you to do is to love, trust, and obey him with the full confidence that he will give you life instead of destroying you as your idol has been doing. So all you need to do is just take that first step to turn from your dead idols to serve the living God. How will you do it? You might think, I don't know how. Here's where you begin. You begin by thinking about Jesus and what he did for you. You think about the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, you consider all your gain but loss and pour contempt on all your pride. This love demands your all. And why shouldn't it? Because he gave his all. As you respond to this, my friend, think about these questions that we're going to sing in just a moment. Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Your idol? No, only a holy God. Who else could make every king bow down? Your idol? No, only a holy God. Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Only a holy God. God's made with hands are not gods at all. Would you bow your heads? And take a moment of quiet prayer. Confess to God what you need to confess. Talk to King Jesus about it. My friend, if you've never been gripped with this message before, and you're thinking, I need, I need to talk to somebody about this, please do. If you came with a friend, talk to your friend. If you want to talk to one of the, one of the pastors or, or someone that you've, you're sitting with, please do. But don't leave without, without thinking about this and considering what step you need to take.